as a venture capitalist, you don't have a hundred percent success rate. That's not how the business works or 98 or 80%, right? The success rate is like somewhere between 10% to 30%. So I sit over here and I get to fail 70% of the time and still have a job. It sounds like wow. a really weird place to live, right? Sure does. But I think what's super exciting is when you get to work with these world-class founders, help them solve problems, help them break through those glass ceilings that where they get to the next level, and then they have other problems to solve. That's the most exciting part of the job is being along for the ride and being a value add to companies that are growing like crazy. People want them, and you get to be a part of that journey. Welcome to Uncooked a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked is my guest, Drew Leahy. He's the managing partner and co-founder of venture capital firm Hawk Ventures. Hawk Ventures co-invests in leading-edge business ideas in the ad tech, martech, and e-commerce spaces. So today, Drew, he's going to give tips on how they detect bullshit in an investor pitch and what they're really looking for before investing in a business idea. We end with Drew's predictions for the future of marketing and how data will play a key role. So there's lots to get to. Let's dig in. Let's rock it. Drew, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, you're from Hawk Ventures, and we need to know a little bit more about Hawk, but also before you get into VCs and all that good stuff, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Sure. How, how did you find yourself in this venture capital space to even begin with? Well, I'm a rock star turned investor. So I really? grew up singing in bands. I was the lead singer of the band, you know, a performer. I got into University of Michigan Music School. For sound recording, I studied some opera while I was at University of Michigan as well. So I started off performing, and I realized I had an affinity for recording, and I wanted to start a record label. So it's kind of funny that I'm a venture capitalist, because if you own a record label and you're signing artists, it's kind of the same thing as being a VC and signing startups, right? Yeah, you're right. For the longest time, I've always said I want to write some sort of book or blog or something about how similar music and startups and venture capital and the recording industry, yes. so similar. So so uh, my dream was to be a recording artist and then ultimately a record label owner, a producer. I started a tech company in 2007. And once I started this music technology company, I was out in LA. I worked with some record producers out there to start this company. I inched towards that sort of tech entrepreneurship versus the music entrepreneurship. And I had a record label in high school and started an LLC and started recording bands and putting out records. So like, I've kind of been doing this like packaging and talent and marketing and producing mm. and building companies ultimately, our artists are ultimately entrepreneurs, right? They're yeah. building a company, a platform. So at so some point in time, you got bit by the tech bug though. Yeah. I was always interested in tech as an industry, right? When you're a recording person, you're using your computer, you're using hardware, you're using right. plugins, you're using software. So I was always very much in that space, in that world. I had this idea to allow artists to raise capital from their fans in the form of equity. And that's where we started my band stock. And it's super interesting because my band stock looks a ton like an NFT does today. You sell some band stock, you sell an NFT, 
you get rights to revenue streams, you get rights to VIP ticketing, like all these different things. We were just like 12 years behind the curve. I was going to say, is band stock still a thing? It is not. No, in okay. 2011, we waved the white flag, but we raised the seed round of capital in the Great Recession, moved out to Los Angeles with my co-founders. I left school early to pursue that company, didn't graduate. So we worked with major record labels. We worked with some artists that were signed to major record labels as well and managers. And we built this whole ecosystem, but we couldn't quite raise enough capital. In 2010, there was no program. There was no Y Combinator. There was nothing that we have today in terms of the resources for entrepreneurs. It's funny because you're the first VC we've had on the show, but I'll have to say that what really interests me is on your site where you say, we are a team of operators, founders, and marketers who believe that every company at its most fundamental level is in the business of marketing. That's what caught my eye. What's the problem that Hawk Ventures is solving exactly for founders who reach out to you? I'll start off with a little bit of a backstory of Hawk Ventures. I've been doing marketing technology pretty much all of my life. After I started the record label, after I started my Bandstock, my Bandstock was a marketing platform for artists, right? So I've always been passionate about the science side of marketing, which is the technology, right? The art side of marketing is the creative, it's the words, it's the positioning, all those things. So Hawk Ventures is really about how do we invest in the best-in-class marketing technology, advertising technology? How do we invest in the best-in-class commerce enablement to help people sell, right? To position, to have channels, to have data-oriented so that you can sell, right? And so what we do with our CEOs, with one of the CEOs of SaaS companies, is we help them get business. We help them get brands on board to their software. And sitting next to Hawk Media, which has about 600 clients, they do about 30 million in revenue and growing every year. We have about 300 people that work at the Hawk Media side of the company. Our job is to align all of this resource that we have at Hawk Media with our investments at Hawk Ventures. So there's a really beautiful partnership there to create a platform for our CEOs to be able to interact with the brands inside of Hawk Media. So you're basically giving them access to marketing, advertising resources that they might not have ordinarily had access to. That's correct, including actually direct sales to brands themselves. Right. So we can act as a sales channel for these investments that we make. That's what really separates us from a lot of different venture capital funds. Unless you have 600 companies in your portfolio, which some funds do, some funds are at this level where they have just a massive portfolio. But most funds, they don't have anywhere near the 600 brands that we can have access to. And so that's kind of where we separate ourselves from the rest of the venture capital funds of the world is that we can do something that is super special for the companies that we invest in. Right. How do you discern who to really invest in? What's a good fit? And how do you determine that? It's super interesting because we have a very narrow investment thesis. It's marketing technology. It's commerce enablement technology. It's very small. Most venture capital firms have, you know, we are business-to-business software investors, right? Which is like just a massive category, right? So because we have such a narrow investment thesis, we get really excited by certain businesses that founders have created. And what we have to do is actually kind of check our bias at the door because we're entrepreneurs, we're operators. We have a very narrow thesis. So not only do we have to say, is this founder amazing? Is this team amazing? Is the market that they're going after big enough? 
We also have to check our bias at the door because we can get really excited about a technology, right? Oh, wow. I wish I had this when I was an operator. This is amazing, right? But sometimes those people aren't the people, the CEOs, the head of sales, the head of product. Sometimes those teams aren't the best teams to bring that to market, right? So what we have to do is validate that the software is needed. And we do that with brands, with people at our agency who are experts in marketing and technology and advertising and media buying and CRM and all the different sort of marketing channels and content, right? And then we also have to interview the founders and check references and figure out like, are these the founders to really take this to a venture scale return, right? You're an investor to get out of a deal, not to just get into a deal, right? You have to be able to figure out how do I ultimately return capital to the investors who are in my fund. Yeah and ultimately get paid because we right. don't get paid unless the companies sell, right? So we're very incentivized to A, check that the software is needed for the market. We do that with the agency. And B, that the team is the right team to bring this to market, to bring this to the next round of funding, to sell the business, right? So we got to check off all those checkboxes. That's interesting. Maybe walk us through a real example of a software company that you've backed that kind of, you know, spread their wings and went on to be a success? Because I'm interested in how is the software side of investing different from other deals VCs make? So I'll give you an example of actually one of the first investments out of our first fund. So we're on, we're on to fund two now, which is doing really well as well. But one of the first investments we made is a company called Postscript. Postscript is SMS for Shopify, right? And this happened in about 2019. When SMS was really starting to catch on, it became acceptable for people to get marketing from SMS and it didn't feel like spam. So there was like an interesting inflection point. There's, there's, There's hundreds of SMS companies today. But Postscript had an amazing management team. One of the guys that we got to know through the investment is the president, Alex Feller. He had come up through a really amazing e commerce company in Los Angeles, which ultimately just sold pretty recently. But what we were able to accomplish with them is we were able to get hundreds of brands onto the platform. And so not only were we invested in the company, not only did we love the founders and love what they were able to accomplish with the business, we've been able to refer hundreds of clients to them. We're one of the largest referral partners to Postscript today. And so that's a perfect example of a company that we could add value to, we could introduce brands to, and that the team was amazing. That company is going on to be well worth a billion dollars in the next few years. So we're very excited. We're one of the first investors in that company and have a great partnership with them. That's cool. So who's a whale of a client for Postscript right now? So they focus on kind of middle tier, the small and medium-sized enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, one of our investors in our fund started a very large coffee business called Deathwish Coffee. And coincidentally, because he's an investor in our fund, because we invested in Postscript, Postscript is also being utilized by Deathwish Coffee. And Deathwish Coffee is a pretty big company. Did you say well known. Deathwish? Deathwish Coffee. They're one of the only coffee brands that injects caffeine into their coffee. And that's what they're known for. They got big skull and crossbones on oh. their logo. So it's extra caffeinated. So they're a big brand that is utilized by Postscript. Postscript has like thousands of customers. Yeah. Um, so they work with any size Shopify brand to enable text commerce and ultimately conversational commerce is one of the things that is a really big part of the ecosystem right now, which is like, how can you build a relationship? 
How do you make this a part of the customer experience? Maybe somebody can ask a question or they can inquire about something. So yeah, PostScript is performing extremely well. When we think about venture capital firms, we typically think about founders getting a big fat check and in return give the VCs the right to basically breathe down the company's neck to produce results, which it still may be true in most cases. But Drew and Hawk Ventures, they seem to have taken a different approach by building a supportive ecosystem around the companies that they invest in. They created Hawk Media, for example, as a way for founders to easily access marketing resources that they need, or even act as a sales channel by cross-selling services among other Hawk Venture companies. So offering these resources as a VC can give founders every possible chance to succeed, much more than writing a check. I think that's pretty cool. I think it's also important to share what they're looking for in a company to invest in. It's not just about the technology alone and the shiny object syndrome. They're really looking for companies who are well-rounded from the start. You could be a charismatic founder, but if you don't surround yourself with a strong team, or if you haven't figured out your addressable market, or how you plan to scale your tech, you may just be stuck with lightning in a bottle, and that's just not good. What's like the bullshit detector for you when you're listening to a pitch? So oh what are the tri- what are the triggers that you're listening? Oh, there's for so when- many. I know, I know. The pattern, rec- like I've looked at, heard thousands of pitches at this yeah. point. I think that what we're really looking for when we're listening to a pitch from a founder, it's just pure authenticity. It's this is what we do. This is how we do it. This is the problem that we're solving. Here's the opportunity that we're already proving fruitful. And oh, by the way, we have experience doing this similarly in other industries or in some other capacity before. This isn't new to us. And it's hard because so many founders are first-time founders. They've never done it before. It's their first pitch deck. It's their first whatever. There's a lot of resources for those people. There's accelerators. There's incubators like Techstars and all these different people who they will take a very wide portfolio approach. They'll take a lot of risks and take a lot of challenge, you know, sort of new founders, and they'll come into the business and they'll make an investment. We're typically a little bit further along in that investment process. We're not the first check. We're after a company has some revenue. So we're just past that level where you're not just getting started. We're helping you grow your business that you've already started. Okay. So that's so what I'm is, looking for is that inflection point. So you guys are, you know, once somebody's way beyond the great idea stage, they've already started to vet it out in market, perhaps maybe they yep. need a little more cash infusion to keep it yep. going. And that's where Hawk Ventures comes in. Correct. And we're there to help basically really amplify the amazing work that they've already created. They already have a case study. They've worked with a couple of brands. Yeah. One of the investments we just did, they already have 8,000 customers. So they're like already doing amazing work and they have right. like zero churn. Like people don't leave this software. They just keep paying and they keep using. We try to find that right inflection point where they're not too late stage. We caught them too late where they're already beyond what we can really get for the right type of equity that we want. And so it's that right sweet spot in between just early enough, but not too late. Okay. I gotcha. 
So when they do come to you, say that they are in that sweet spot, in that zone, how do you advise founders to create a successful brand that stands out before they even think about producing and putting money into an actual campaign? Context is always pretty key because as a VC, we are not just looking at where they're at, but also where they're going to. And a lot of times that all starts with what we call ICP or the ideal customer profile. And so what you're constantly doing as an early stage venture capitalist or even a later stage venture capitalist, what you're constantly doing is going, who is the ICP, the customer, and where do they exist and how many of them are there, right? And with marketing and sales and partnerships, how can we create those three layers to go after this customer? Well, sometimes you realize that what got you to 20,000 in monthly recurring revenue isn't what gets you to 100,000 in monthly recurring revenue or a million. Right. And so as advisors, as partners, as investors, we say, okay, let's be real. Who are we trying to reach? How many are there? And can we reach them? And so that's just growth. That's just talking about how do you grow the company, right? And so usually what happens is, oh, you know, you're right. That's a problem we identified. We need to make sure we're positioning the software that does XYZ ABC to those customers. So positioning turns out to be one of the most important parts of how to identify a customer and link and, you know, use copy and imaging and creative to then mm-hmm. ultimately sell someone on what your product benefits are, right? And so that's what I do a lot of work with with founders. And so once we've kind of identified ICP, once we've identified positioning, once we've worked on some of the tweaks that need to happen, then we go out there and use partnerships and marketing and sales tactics to go reach those customers and then see how it works. Yeah. Has it happened where once you dug in, the founders think that the positioning is one way and they're actually targeting one customer. And then as you're digging in yourself, you're like, actually, guys, think your positioning should be about this and your ideal customer is this all the time. Constantly. I think one of the hardest things as a founder is being able to step outside of your emotional Mm -hmm. connection to it, but still be intellectually wed to it. And that's why you need advisors. That's why you need people outside. That's why you need people inside. That's why you need to zoom in, zoom out. And I think that can be a really difficult thing. The best marketers on the planet can just look at something and go, you know what? We're going to twist it just like this, and this is how we're going to do it. Oh, yeah. And so I've heard and seen multiple instances where that's just what needs to happen is someone just needs to kind of talk about it in a little bit different way and position it slightly differently, and then things open up. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why I asked the question, because I I would imagine that they might start with one positioning idea in mind and then talk to you and they end up having something completely different. When you get to that inflection point of, say, the positioning, is that where Hawk Media comes in? Do you actually help them with a go-to-market campaign in terms of ideation, creative, and then out into the world? How does that work? It's interesting. We don't have any mandate that when we invest in a company, they need to use Hawk Media or anything like that. We are here as a resource if they need it. A lot of times these like very product focused, product growth oriented startups are hiring in-house for a lot of their marketing resources, not all of them, but many of them. It's a little bit different when you're building a product, that product has attributes, you're releasing every two weeks. How do we tie product marketing 
with our product, with our outbound marketing, that can be sometimes a little bit more difficult for an agency who's fractional, right? They're not full-time. Right. That could be a little bit more difficult because you run an ad campaign for three weeks, a month, you relay those that information back to your product team. The length of those cycles is super long versus if everybody's looking at the same data, they're in the same seats, they're growth hacking, if you will, because you're making product tweaks and all that. It's a little bit more of like an inside ecosystem bet. So we see that a lot. And so what I try to help out with is the combination of product marketing and then how that relates to the channel strategies. So if a founder, you're working with a company, they have their own outside agency. Do you, Drew, get involved in the agency relationship? Not typically. I'll get as involved as they'd like me. So okay. We just invested in a company. We're setting up a kickoff call to talk about the playbook for their marketing strategy. Yep. What resources do they need? What's their funnel look like? What are the KPIs we're measuring? What are our partnerships, sales, and content strategy? I work on all that with those folks. A lot mm -hmm. of times what they do is they take that, they come together, they go build a plan. A lot of the relationship between the investor and the CEO and the team is like, they have to go do all of it, right? So we sit and we say like, this is what it should look like. And we're happy to make comments and put together a plan, but they're the ones that really have to sit in the driver's seat and actually get it done. But we're there as much as they want us to be. You might not want to talk about this in my next question. I know everyone talks a lot about success stories, you know, and like the Cinderella story of investing into a company. But I think for my listeners, just as illuminating are stories of companies who really did struggle. So without mentioning any names, can you tell us a story about a company you've invested in a business and once it was underway, it basically died on the vine for certain reasons. Can you just talk about that? Because I think listeners will really learn from what really doesn't work once you get into this. So there's a really interesting graph that talks about the number one, number two, number three, number four reasons that startups fail. And context is everything. Actually, one of the main reasons that startups fail is because of co-founder issues, which is like, well, Jacqueline, I disagree with how you want to run this business. Therefore, this business probably isn't going to get figured out, right? Or Jacqueline, you messed up all the accounting. Or Drew, I didn't book the sales. And so we don't have revenue. So <laughs> like the reasons why startups don't figure it out are crazy. The main ones, though, are essentially lack of product market fit which means you built something nobody wanted, right? <laughs> and co-founder issues and running out of capital. So everything else, there's a bunch of other things that happen. But from our perspective, there's plenty of businesses that we have looked at, followed up on, and they went away, right? We passed on them, whatever. There's one company that comes to mind that we invested in last year, and they're struggling a bit right now, but they're most likely going to sell because they're that good. So mm -hmm. it's not like it's going to end up being a total zero. But what happened was, is that they found out that there wasn't a willingness to pay for this amazing technology that they built. They talked to people, they'd even make money for people with their tool, all these different things. But the willingness to pay in this specific category is really difficult. And again, it kind of goes down to that product market fit. Like I built something that people don't want to pay for. They really like the results for it. The category, in my opinion, is a no-brainer for people to have budget for. But what happens is, is sometimes you build a product and you're just targeting the wrong customers. You know, instead of this being a, 
let's say call it a thousand dollar a month product, it should have been a nine dollar a month product. And then everybody would just adopt it. Who knows what might have been a better route? But a lot of times you build a company and you say, I want to build an enterprise SaaS company and I want to charge 10 grand a month for this. Well, a couple of years in, you realize, well, people will pay 10 bucks a month for it, but not 10 grand, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so it's like, at what point do you like change that strategy? And then, well, you got to raise more money and, and right. all these things swirl around. And so the early stages of a business, the pre-seed, the seed, even after you've raised that million or two million, you're problem solving all day long. You're constantly testing a hypothesis. Does this work? Nope, that doesn't work. Does this work? Oh, that worked. More of that, right? Mm -hmm. And then six months later, that dries up and you're like, well, why did this dry up? Like, oh, we got to change this. Oh, okay. So you're yeah. constantly kind of problem solving. And it's so different for every business. What I always tell people to really focus on is like, focus on what you're good at. Be authentic, be real. Don't go and try to learn email marketing if you've never done it before. Maybe focus on something else. If you're really good at the social media side of things, lean into that. Like, just do what you're good at, lean into your strengths, outsource the weaknesses, and really just focus on how do you be as authentic as possible with your business. Let's talk about Drew's point of having to marry the brand's positioning with the ideal consumer profile. Remember that a brand's purpose is different from the brand's positioning. The purpose is the why, why you're in business beyond making money. And the brand positioning is how. It's how you choose to communicate your brand's why to the world. So Drew and Hawk Ventures, they play really a key role here to help founders who may be too close to see where brand's positioning needs to be adjusted based on the realities of who's actually buying the product. Every founder needs an outside perspective to ensure that the big picture is always front and center and the willingness to heed advice to even pivot. Secondly, let's talk about startup failure lessons. Drew hit on two main reasons. One is when the founders have co-founders and then there's a lot of finger pointing going on when business operations start to take an ugly turn. So lesson number one, either don't have a co-founder or assign clear accountability for key business tasks early and often. But the other top failure reason Drew mentioned is when founders really build a product that no one wants. It sounds obvious, but to me, the lesson there goes back to nailing down why you're building this technology in the first place. For example, a brand in Hawk Ventures portfolio is a company called AirVet, which is basically a telehealth platform for pets. It's cool, right? So would you say that they're in the telehealth business for pets? Or are they in the business of alleviating worry for pet parents? That's how you ensure that you're solving a real problem people care about. So ask yourself, what business are you really in? My question next is, I just want to know, what is it that lights you up that you're loving about this job? Definitely super passionate. I love to build things. And there's this really amazing moment where you've tried the thousandth filament and like the light bulb stays on, right? <laughs> and like, I live for that moment as a technologist, as a product person, as a builder. And I truly believe that if you work on solving hard problems, the money will come, right? 
Yeah. And as a venture capitalist, you don't have a hundred percent success rate. That's not how the business works or 98 or 80%, right? The success rate is like somewhere between 10% to 30%. So I sit over here and I get to fail 70% of the time and still have a job. It sounds like wow. a really weird place to live, right? Sure does. But I think what's super exciting is when you get to work with these just like world-class founders, help them solve problems, help them break through those glass ceilings that where they get to the next level. And then they have other problems to solve. That's the most exciting part of the job is being along for the ride and being a value add to companies that are growing like crazy. People want them and you get to be a part of that journey. That's great. So since you've been over at Hawk, can you tell me about what's surprised you since you've been there? There's a lot of really smart people that exist in the world and they have great ideas. And there's a lot of things that make sense in theory, but then you go out into the real world and it's like, wow, like I had no idea that people wouldn't respond to that. This just makes sense, right? And that happens a lot in venture capital. Yeah. You know, the companies that for some reason don't end up doing well, I'm still sitting over here being like, what? Like, why? Like, everyone should use this. Like, this is a no-brainer. And that's what I think is the craziest thing is that you can never quite predict how people are going to react to these really smart widgets that everyone mm -hmm. should use. Like, I personally have dreamt of building a little brand that I run that uses every single piece of technology that I invest in. And I'm like, yeah, oh, this is how this works. And here's the ROI over here. And you literally just point to this Frankenstein system that I yeah. put together and invested in, but, but everything works together. And you could go try something else, but this works really great. So like, go focus on what you're good at and use this playbook. So I think that's been a really crazy thing. And I think all investors sort of deal with that on a certain level, which is like you invest in a company eight months later, 12 months later, it looks different than maybe where you started. You've learned a lot. You have kind of hindsight 2020 type stuff happen. So yeah, I think that's been one of the really interesting things that I've learned. Yeah, I could see you being on the sidelines going, people, why don't you get this? This is an amazing idea. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. And then you realize that like, that has happened throughout the course of time everywhere, yeah. you know? You know, looking at the great philosophers and looking at, you know, even just Rome 2000 years ago, how advanced they are. And you're like, how did we not continue this? Like, mm -hmm. how did this get messed up? Like, <laughs> and it happens all the time. And so that's what makes these really great companies even more special is that right. like, it just works. It's like water. It just flows and it, you can drink it. It's incredible when you do hit that stride. Yeah, um, I bet. Do you do any marketing in your business? Is that a thing? So does Hawk Ventures market itself or is it mostly like a word of mouth business? You know, it is mostly a word of mouth business. We are bringing on board a head of platform to help us make sure that we are marketing ourselves. It kind of becomes an afterthought when we're yeah. so entrenched in the businesses that we're in. Most of the marketing that we do for ourselves is around like marketing to investors, trying to get people to invest in our fund. The rest of it, you know, Hawk Media, Eric, myself, our associate Mara, we have a lot of relationships and connections and we get a ton of deal flow that comes directly to us. 
whether it's through the agency or through our own connection. So we do get a lot of inbound referral type business, but you know, we're building a new website for ourselves right now. So we're getting that put together. We have a diversity and equity and inclusion program that we do to teach people venture capital who are from diverse backgrounds. That's a program that we've called the Hawk Venture Fellows. So we started that. We're marketing for folks to join us in that program. And so, you know, I would say that our marketing is more of a community-based marketing strategy. It's more of a partnership-based marketing strategy. So for us, the way that we think about marketing is a little bit different than a consumer brand or a business-to-business software company. But the way that we are trying to enact marketing is essentially through community and partnerships. Yeah, that makes sense to me. When I was doing a little homework on you, there was something that you were talking about in another conversation, and it was about the Hawk Adventure Club. Yeah. I was like, what's this? I heard about it. I was like, how do I get in on this club over here? (laughs) So Hawk Adventure Club is something that we started internally at Hawk Media for folks who are interested in learning about venture capital or interested in being a part of the venture capital process at Hawk Media. So we got about 20 to 30 folks at any given time in the Hawk Adventure Club, and I teach them some venture capital about how it works to look at a company and do due diligence. And then we bring companies that are in our pipeline to the paid media team, to the email marketing team, to a recruiter, to a salesperson, to different folks that are inside of the Hawk Adventure Club. And then we bring them in as sort of a part of the venture capital process. Um, We may have them interview a CEO. We may have them do a product demo. And so that's one of the ways that we tap into the Hawk Media ecosystem is through the Hawk Adventure Club. So your philosophy of having people understand VC at a more intimate level is only going to serve Hawk better by having these other people out in the world who really can practice it and perhaps be part of it. I see that. That's great. Well, I always say that teaching venture capital is basically about failure studies. Like the job is to go, look, most of these companies are going to fail. Look at the data. 85% fail in five years. That's what it looks at. When you get venture capital funding, it drops to like 70%. Mm. But so most of it, like anything that you look at, it's probably going to be dead. And so you have to teach people who have never gotten into this world. Maybe they've done some public market investing. Those companies aren't going to die. I mean, realistically, they might get smaller, but they're never going to just like raise their hand one day and be like, we're out of money. So the first kind of step to teaching venture capital or understanding really how it works is like our job is to say, how do we think this fails? Does it fail? When we can't come up with reasons or like we literally just have exhausted ourselves on how it will fail, we can't come up with it. Like that's probably a good company to be invested in, right? Mm -hmm. But we're still wrong on our analysis, you know? But the idea is that you're constantly going through where the pitfalls are. How does this not go right? Where does this really become a profitable business? All those things are just understanding, like, how could this fail, right? Now, that's a very different skill than being a marketer. And you're constantly looking at opportunity and you're constantly looking at, well, if we can hit these numbers, then we can be at this level. So it's like, it's kind of a different skill set to ultimately size up things that are risky, right? It's it's risk analysis. How long does it take you to size up a company? You know, like from that first time after that first pitch where you're interested, 
what's the runway between that first pitch to you giving them a check, like in terms of you looking at the risk and deciding it is worth it? The typical schedule is somewhere between eight to 12 weeks. That's pretty quick. Now, some things happen faster than that. Some things take a lot longer than that. A lot of times we'll be at a company, they're too early for us. We ask to be on their mailing list and keep us updated on how it's going. Six months goes by, they just got a big check from another investor. Now they're doing really well. Oh, their revenue has ticked up. Oh, like, hey, actually, guys, let's talk. This this, this is all really great. We want to get involved now. Those are my favorite scenarios because there's a much longer lead time to understanding who these people are, how they operate, how they communicate, how they're positioning. A lot of times I'll give advice to a startup six months later, they've implemented it and it's going really well. And like, well, that's always great that somebody was coachable, it worked, right? So yeah, I like to say anywhere from eight to 12 weeks, but it can be longer and it can be shorter. Yeah. But even still, eight to 12 weeks, that was uh, shorter than what I thought. It's a very short cycle to get married. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's great. Just putting like a prediction hat on and and you're not going to be held to any predictions, I promise. (laughs) But I just love future casting with people. Where do you see the industry going? And even maybe what is frustrating the hell out of you about it at the moment? If you go back to even like Ogilvy right? Who kind of like wrote the book on a lot of modern copywriting, modern advertising. I say modern in the like Mm -hmm. last 50 years since, Mm -hmm. right? It's always been about channels. It's like what magazine, what billboard, what end table. Channels and marketing has always been one of the biggest parts about how we reach people that we want to talk to, right? All the biggest innovations in marketing are going to come from emerging channels. It's TikTok now. It'll be something else in three years. <laughs> like, yep. Yep. And then the frustrating part is how does all this data connect together? Where are the ways that I can truly understand attribution and where someone came from and where did they hear about us? And we live in this digital world where the privacy has been behind for a while, but now it's starting to catch up. Mm-hmm. And I would like to see less walled gardens and more interoperability. I'd like to see the user own more of their data, be able to share more of it with people that they want to share it with. And so all the innovations are going to come from channel. And then all the other innovations are going to come from the art side. I made a video. I said this. It looked like this. People cared. Who knew? Right? Yeah. So again, it's the science. It's the channel. It's how we deal with user data. And then it's the art. It's the creative stuff that we never thought would exist. I remember I was working at full screen eight years ago and YouTube multi-channel network overseeing, you know, tens of thousands of different channels. And I was at the office and my buddy goes, Hey, see this video of a piece of toast. It's four seconds long. It has like millions of videos, millions of views. And I'm like, You're like not possible. <laughs> right. And so it's stuff like that. That's the art side of things where Who knew? And then you have the science side of things, which is the channels, it's the data, it's the interoperability, all that stuff. Wow. Okay. That's a great answer. Less walled gardens, more user data, interoperability. Good answers there. Last question for you. And I ask all my guests because I get such interesting answers, which is write the headline from five years from now in a glowing feature story about Hawk Venture. My goal has always been that 
I want Hawk Ventures to become a $100 million family office. So we invest in companies, we have outside investors right now, we have a $50 million fund that we raise every three years. But because our profits come in from our investments, we reinvest those profits into more assets and into other different investment strategies. And what we build is our own sort of investment ecosystem from incubation to late stage to hedge fund, to whatever it is, Hawk Ventures becomes this sort of place where we are able to invest our own capital. We also have outside investors, but the main driver is this pre-seed and seed SaaS marketing technology, commerce enablement strategy. That's sort of the tip of the spear. And those profits create all the different arms of a family office that we manage at Hawk Ventures. So the headline is Hawk Ventures announces $100 million multi-single or single family office. Well, I'll check back in with you in five years and we'll see if the headline is there. Okay, gang, that wraps my conversation with Drew Leahy from Hawk Ventures. For those who are new to venture capital, I hope this was a good primer for you. But I also hope in speaking to Drew that you're starting to see the difference between writing a big check and hoping for the best versus Hawk's philosophy of creating this supportive ecosystem purpose-built to surround new businesses with key resources needed so they could just get off the ground. But I want to bring all of this back to brand strategy, as I do, so here's a few takeaways I'd like you to think about. You don't need to be a VC to future cast a creative or business idea. There are two frames you could start to put into practice today. So one is to constantly visualize the potential pitfalls of the idea at hand. Putting your personal bias aside and ask, what problem are we solving today? And can that set us up for solving a new problem for tomorrow? This helps to really understand if your idea has legs to play the long game. The second reframe is to create your zag, right? When everyone else is zigging, if you will. So before you even contact a VC to ask for money, you need to figure out three core elements really to illustrate how your idea can outmaneuver the competition. You might wanna take a note for this one. So first is find your truth. What is your brand's raw truth that taps into a universal human desire? So let's go back to the Televet example from before called AirVet. The universal human desire is to ensure our pets live a long and healthy life, but huge vet bills can really stand in the way of that. AirVet's raw truth is about alleviating worry by giving pet parents affordable access to life-saving care, right? So the second is differentiation. It's zagging, it really requires some uniqueness. So does the idea that you have add value to people that they didn't have before? So complete the sentence. My company is the only blank that blanks. That'll get you started. And the third and final ingredient here is trends. So what wave are you riding here with this creative or business idea? You can totally succeed by finding your truth and creating differentiation. But to truly outmaneuver, the idea needs to be powered by some sort of macro trend. So in AirVet's case, for instance, it's millennials opting for pets instead of kids, and they're asking employers for pet benefits. So adding macro or micro trends as the third ingredient your idea taps into, that can be the secret to capturing the attention of a VC like Hawk Ventures. So if you want to learn more about Drew and Hawk Ventures, 
There's links in the show notes. Hit them up. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. If you want to discuss how your company can find differentiation and activate your raw truth in marketing, this is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. Please follow the show. Tell a friend. Thank you so much for listening.